You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Petya ransomware pandemic has spread essentially everywhere. It's worse than WannaCry and shows how little many enterprises did to protect themselves even after WannaCry's shot across their bow. Tanium's Ryan Kazantzian joins us with the latest from their investigation. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 28, 2017. Today's news is dominated by what we'll call for convenience sake the Petya pandemic. It's going by different names, Petya Wrap, Not Petya, and GoldenEye to take three alternatives, but it's the same disturbing product. The ransomware infestation began in Ukraine and has still hit that country most severely, but it's spread rapidly around the world, worming its way through Windows systems that haven't patched for the eternal blue exploit used last month by WannaCry. Joining us is Ryan Kazantzian, Chief Security Architect at Tanium. So yesterday morning, uh, June 27th, uh, around 8 or 9 a.m. Eastern Time, just as I was getting up, uh, there was some initial chatter of uh, this ransomware strain uh, infecting uh, a number of organizations, primarily in uh, the Europe and Eastern Europe region. Um, there were a couple of reported infections around uh, Ukraine, uh, and then we started to see some spread with uh, organizations uh, really throughout the world, uh, even a handful in the United States, uh, reporting that they had been impacted by this. Uh, and it was initially thought to be a variant of uh, the Petya uh, ransomware, uh, which is a malware family that uh, had been seen earlier this year. Uh, it has since been thought to be a different or at least slightly related, but not necessarily just a minor update to the original Petya malware. So uh, a few people have taken to calling it Kinyetia and other little puns and variants on that name. So as we're recording, it's it's Wednesday morning on the 28th. Uh, where do we stand right now? Today we have a much clearer understanding of uh, how this ransomware operates, uh, how people initially got infected, and how it propagates than yesterday. Uh, there was a bit of a fog of war yesterday as this first emerged. Uh, you have to imagine that organizations that were targeted by it were busy putting out fires. And in the meantime, a lot of security vendors and security researchers were trying to piece together information from publicly available sources to understand uh, how this thing worked. And so uh, there was initially some uh, incorrect assumptions made. Uh, a few uh, folks started looking at samples and virus total, uh, found some that were definitely this new malware. 
um, found some that were not actually related, and so there were some uh, indicators of compromise that didn't actually end up applying. Uh, what we now know today is that uh, the malware initially was transferred to uh, impacted organizations through a software update that was laden with the malware, and that software update was for a uh, Ukrainian tax accounting software package uh, from a company called NEDOC. Uh, and as part of that update, uh, the, the organization was apparently hacked, and the update uh, updated software included the malware delivery mechanism, uh, and that is, in fact, how the initial set of victims uh, got the ransomware. The initial thought had been that this malware was transferred uh, to victim organizations by means of a malicious Word document uh, attached to emails. Uh, that actually turned out to be incorrect. Uh, a few researchers had mistakenly correlated uh, an unrelated malware family sample to, to this campaign. Uh, but when you look at the initial method of, of entry, you can get a sense of how victim organizations have been targeted and chosen by the attacker. Uh, if you see something that's like a blast email campaign targeting thousands or tens of thousands of accounts, then you can kind of sense, get a sense of what the targeting is. In this case, when you, when you pinpoint a very specific vendor like MEDOC that has a very specific customer base, uh, from a regionality and an industry perspective, that uh, that certainly changes the scope of the attack and might provide some clues as to the attacker's intent. At this point, what do we know about propagation? So once an organization is compromised, once there's a patient zero, uh, the malware uses a few different methods to uh, propagate within that organization's network. Uh, the first thing that it actually does is uh, rather unique compared to uh, WannaCry. Uh, in that uh, this strain of malware actually recovers credentials from your infected system, uh, specifically the Windows accounts that uh, are either local to the box or have recently logged in and still have credentials cached in memory. And then it uses those credentials to attempt to authenticate to other Windows systems in the same network using uh, Windows protocols that are just native to the operating system. And so it has a built-in uh, renamed PS exec utility that it uses with those credentials that it recovers to try to connect to shares on remote hosts. And once it's connected to those, it uses a combination of uh, WMI, which is a native Windows uh, tool, um, to basically uh, execute the payload that uh, drops the malware onto that host. And so uh, what you ended up seeing is, um, even if you were patched against the most recent vulnerabilities in Windows, uh, if your Windows environment was set up such that you had common credentials that could be used to mount uh, administrative shares from host to host, uh, or if a highly privileged user uh, was unfortunately patient zero, then that allowed the malware to propagate to a lot more shares. And so it really became a automated version of the types of lateral movements that uh, targeted attackers will often apply when moving from host to host. Uh, and so that was the first method. The second method was similar to WannaCry uh, in that it used the Eternal Blue SMB v1 exploit. And uh, the only distinction between WannaCry and uh, this attack campaign is that um, this did not focus on spreading outside of the corporate network by means of the SMB v1 attack. Uh, it was more of a sort of fallback mechanism for propagation uh, to complement the uh, method that used the credentials on the box. And so is there any sense for how wide this may spread? It's still difficult to tell if we're at the long tail of propagation or if um, 
there's going to be a, a point of, you know, the sort of hockey stick growth that you sometimes see with some of these campaigns. Uh, the fortunate thing is that because the initial entry vector uh, is fairly targeted in that coming from that Ukrainian tax software, um, it is unlikely that a very large number of organizations had a patient zeros. And so the, the damage that was done will likely uh, be largely contained to those initial victims. That being said, uh, there's nothing stopping the attacker from repackaging the same malware to be carried over different um, attack vectors, like the, uh, for example, uh, an office macro attack, as was initially speculated to be one, one of the means of transmittal. Um, and so I, it would not surprise me to see uh, follow-up campaigns or copycat campaigns that iterate on the same concept. Uh, the fact remains that between organizations that fail to patch in a timely manner uh, and that uh, have not locked down their Windows network to prevent these sorts of host-to-host lateral movement, um, lots of other uh, attackers can learn lessons from what worked and what didn't work in previous campaigns and uh, adapt their future campaigns accordingly. And so how about prevention? How can people protect themselves against this? It's interesting. I think you know, everyone says that uh, WannaCry uh, caught the entire industry uh, with, with, with our pants down insofar as almost no one was being as aggressive as they should have with patching. You had a three-month-old patch for a 30-month-old protocol, SMDV1, that Microsoft has been telling people to disable for upwards of three or four years now. And yet still WannaCry rolls around and months and months later, no one's patched. Uh, there's a lot of reasons behind that. I don't mean to say that for victim shaming purposes. Uh, you know, patching in many organizations is tedious and complex. And a lot of the patch management and systems management solutions that companies use are using ancient technology. Um, and so systems management and the discipline and focus around that ends up being really critical here. And the same is true for this most recent strain of malware where, yes, it's true that even if you were patched, it could still propagate, but the principles around locking down lateral movement, protect, protecting credentials on endpoints, um, restricting the types of host-to-host traffic that this, this malware took advantage of, um, have, again, been talked about for upwards of five years as principles to restrict any form of lateral movement, not just wormable attacks. Um, and so these are, again, I, I look at these as failures of, of systems management, um, more so than simply matters of failing to detect a new strain of malware. Uh, the reality is there will always be new, new strains of malware that our prevention tools fail to detect. There will always be new attack vectors that uh, a lot of security prevention tools uh, have failed to consider. Our thanks to Ryan Kazansian from Tanium for taking the time out to join us this morning. As you might imagine, they've been busy. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. You know, you and I often talk about these cases that are making their way through, and we say to ourselves, this one may make its way to the Supreme Court. Well, today we're talking about one that did make its way to the Supreme Court, actually got a unanimous decision. Uh, Take us through what we've got here today. It's rare to see unanimous uh, decisions on on things that we would think of as controversial, but that's exactly what we saw in this case called Packingham v. North Carolina. Uh, The state of North Carolina passed a statute that made it a felony for registered sex offenders to access social media websites like Facebook and Twitter if they might encounter minors on those websites. And the Supreme Court, in an 8-0 decision, uh, the newest justice, Justice Gorsuch, did not take part in it held that this law is unconstitutional. And that's not surprising. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the opinion, uh, wrote, and I quote, a fundamental principle of the First Amendment is that all persons have access to places where they can speak and listen, and then after reflection, speak and listen once more. Ever since the Supreme Court really started to explore First Amendment jurisprudence, particularly in the last 80 years or so, they've been extremely hesitant to allow what we call prior restraint. And that's restriction on a method of speech before the speaker has even uttered those words. It's one thing for uh, law enforcement to punish somebody for the words that have been spoken. And there are a number of exceptions in First Amendment jurisprudence that allow punishment for for somebody's words. Well, we always think of, uh, you know, shouting fire in a crowded movie theater. That's what everyone always says. You can't do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, if, if, you, if your speech would create what we call imminent lawless action, uh, and that's the, the legal standard, then that's uh, not constitutionally protected speech. And those are the kind of restrictions that the Supreme Court has generally allowed over the years, where they've been extremely hesitant to restrict anybody uh, even the most objectionable people in, in society, people who have been uh, convicted as sex offenders, they've been incredibly reluctant to limit any venues for speech. And it's, it, you know, it makes sense to us. This is the equivalent in the 1800s of preventing somebody from going into a public square and making a political statement. You can't prevent somebody from using a venue to, to speak their mind entirely. And I think it's 
completely unsurprising that the Supreme Court reached this decision unanimously. Whatever you think about the plaintiffs in this case, I think they're upholding a fundamental tenet of our of our First Amendment. And interesting for us specifically because this is one of the first cases that have made it to the Supreme Court that have to do with social media and, and these modern modern methods of communication. Yeah, I mean, in effect, what this what this decision is saying is that people have a constitutional right to use social media. Again, social media has just become a venue to be used. It's the equivalent to any physical place or or any other type of place. It's a place where people can speak political ideas, where there can be a marketplace of ideas, uh, even for the most objectionable views. The Supreme Court is acknowledging that even though these are private entities, you can't ban a person from using this critical venue. This is just the way we, we get our ideas out in the 21st century. And I think the Supreme Court is recognizing that principle. And from now on, there is a precedent that uh, a person has a constitutional right to use social media to express themselves. And I think that's going to be a very important precedent going forward. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.